0: This afternoon, we continue working our way through the Ten Commandments as we find them in the Heidelberg Catechism. We've now reached the Tenth Commandment, the Final Commandment, and in connection with that, we'll be reading two passages. First of all, we'll be reading from 1 Timothy 6, the verses 3 to 10, and then we'll follow that up by reading Matthew 6, the verses 19 to 21. 1 Timothy 6. Verses 3 to 10. So Paul's just been writing to Timothy. And he's given him uh, much advice. Scriptural advice. And much in the way of teaching. And he finishes it off in 6 verse 2 by saying, teach and exhort these things. Verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, are brought, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and the snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So far. Let's now turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, the verses 19 to 21, which you can find on page 1117 of your pew Bible. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So far the word of God. Let's now turn together to Lord's Day 44. We'll continue looking at this summary of the Word of God as we find it in Lord's Day 44, what the Tenth Commandment requires of us. And you can find that on page 558 of your book of praise. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? So that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins, and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, the leaves are changing color. Once again, they are reminding us that the Christmas season is not too far off. Throughout this season, we'll once again be bombarded by advertisements. Get this better gadget. Get this better toy. Your life is incomplete, but this thing that you buy will give you satisfaction. There's a whole advertising industry that grows off of Christmas. And this whole industry is driven by getting someone to set their desire on something and then take steps to buy it. You're shown something that's beautiful and new. A brand new snowmobile or something else. You're told that now, having seen it, your life won't be the same without it. You can't settle for less. You can't settle for the old clunker that you currently have. Because it is settling, and it is not enough to settle in life. Contentment is not enough. You always need more. Interestingly enough, last Christmas, the Christmas season of 2016, was labeled by the Daily Mail on the BBC as the Christmas of discontent. Pilots, postal workers, and airport staff had all threatened to strike. Train drivers were striking as well. One specialist at the University of Sussex commented, we've not seen this much strike action since the mid-1980s. All of them were asking for more. What they had was not enough. Was it legitimate? Was it not? I can't say I've looked into it enough to know. But does it fit in with the times? It does seem to fit in with the times, doesn't it? The theme of our consumer-oriented generation. We always want more. Even realizing that we can lose it all in one hurricane, And we can lose it all in one tsunami. Barely slows us down. We want more. More, more, more. Don't settle for your boat or your paycheck. Don't settle for your husband or wife. Don't settle for your life. Don't settle. But what does the opposite of not settling look like? Do we settle? Do we simply sit back and say, well, these are the cards I've been dealt. I guess I'll put up with them. Brothers and sisters, we'll examine this in the following theme and points. Through the 10th commandment, God calls us to find our contentment in Christ. And we'll see, first of all, that contentment is lost in covetousness. And secondly, contentment gained in Christ. Love the ones, are you content? Are you happy with the situation that you're in, with the things that you have? I think that everyone would agree that contentment is a good thing. When you're able to sit back after a good holiday dinner, see your family smiling and joking around the dinner table, and think to yourself how much the Lord has blessed you. It can be easy to be content. But when things get tough, it can get a little more difficult. And we're reminded of that with Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma following close on its heels, Hurricane Jose, the 8.1 magnitude earthquake that happened in the Gulf of Mexico causing a tsunami. We're reminded of that. We read the words, godliness with contentment is of great gain in 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. And we think to ourselves, how can it be of great gain to be content with the way things are now? Life is hard right now. I've lost my job. My marriage is shaky. My coworkers are awful. And my fellow students are miserable. How can it be of great gain for me to be content this way? At this point, it may be helpful to look into what exactly we understand by contentment, and to contrast this with what we read in the Tenth Commandment. So why does the Apostle Paul tell us that godliness with contentment is of great gain? By explaining godliness in this way, many of our modern-day forms of Christianity are ruled out. Almost a year ago, there was an article that was published about the Christians who are supporting the President, Donald Trump as they had much influence on him during his time as a business owner prior to his rise to the presidency, they were then being shot to the foreground. But the gospel that they were preaching was no gospel at all. Why? Because their gospel was focused around this world and around materialism, around acquiring money and power. The little that they did speak about sin, they spoke about as mistakes and not about something that you needed salvation from. There are people who are teaching along similar lines in Paul's day. You can read about that. These men who are teaching all of these other things, he says, uh, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. You had people who were teaching the same things in his day. So when Paul speaks about godliness with contentment, he is saying something that flies in the face of the prosperity gospel. The gospel that we have is not one that's focused on acquisition and avarice, on greed, it's a gospel that's focused on Christ and on finding our contentment in him. Next, it's important to note that not just godliness with contentment is of great gain, but that godliness with contentment is spoken of. Paul is showing that his opponent's view of godliness needs to change. His opponents were trying to pursue a godliness without contentment. They were constantly on the move, constantly searching for more opportunities to increase their wealth and material goods. But Paul speaks out against that. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But we have food, and we have clothing, and with these we'll be content. Godliness allows you to have a proper perspective on life. Godliness lets you see that the things of this world are fleeting. One moment you're there, and the next moment you're gone. Your life is like the grass that grows up for a little while and then disappears. And so the same thing happens with your possessions. You spend your time and effort pursuing more and more. But in the big scheme of things... In a big scheme of things, you're pursuing a vapor in the wind. Godliness instead encourages us not to focus on acquiring many things here, but on storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus himself highlighted this in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 12, verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, it's not just for philosophical reasons that Christ says something like this. He mentions this for very practical reasons as well. God has wired us to find contentment in none other than Him through Christ. And when we start looking elsewhere, when we start coveting that which belongs to others, start coveting that which is just out of reach, then we lose sight of what is truly important. What happens then? What happens when we, even for a moment, cease to fix our eyes on Jesus and start to fix them on worldly things instead? Then that void within us, which can only be filled by God, begins to cry out to be filled. Because you can't be satisfied with what's in front of you. Each time you say, just a little bit more. Just a bit more money. Just a bit of a bigger, faster snowmobile. But you make a grave mistake. For as one theologian said, if you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. And then contentment no longer means to be satisfied. Because if that happens... And contentment means to settle. And settling? Settling's not for me. And with this attitude, people begin to covet. Now, in talking about coveting, the Bible uses a number of different terms. There are three that stand out in particular, two in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. We'll talk about those three in order for a moment. The first speaks about the desire for a neighbor's possessions. The Hebrew word for that is hamad, H-A-M-A-D. This is not just thinking, that would be nice to have. Instead, it's setting your desire on something with a purpose. Once you set your desire on that thing, you're out to get it. You want to get it. Steps are taken to see if you can acquire whatever it is that is not yet yours. There's several examples of this in scripture and the most vivid of them can be found in Joshua 7 verse 21 with the sin of Achan. Achan saw some beautiful things. He saw a cloak from Shinar. He saw silver. He saw gold. Wow, he said. He couldn't keep his hands off of them. He set his desire on them. And immediately he put a plan in place to take them. Thinking that no one would notice the difference, he hid them under the ground in his tent. Kids, have you ever experienced this? You saw something and it struck you so much that although it belonged to someone else, you just couldn't keep your hands off of it. Maybe it was cookie dough or a sibling's toy. And you just couldn't help yourself. You set your desire on it. You wanted it. And then you took it. As we can see, coveting, in this sense of the word, is directly connected to taking something. There is no difference between desiring and plotting to take. With this word, coveting is not just a matter of the heart. It's a desire that's directly played out into action. But It's not just coveting which results in action that's condemned by God. God looks deeper. He looks to the heart. The evidence for this can be found in another word for coveting, awa. This word can be found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Particularly it can be found in Proverbs 21 verse 26. The righteous man who gives generously is contrasted against the man who's described as coveting all day long. Now, this man hasn't taken anything, but this word is used to describe this selfish desire that's in his heart. That suddenly hits a lot closer to home, doesn't it? We don't always immediately act on our thoughts. As adults, we recognize that there's consequences to doing that. There's consequences to, be, to being caught with our hands in the cookie jar. There are consequences to acting on our fantasies, indulging them to the point of doing what we know that we probably shouldn't. But simply the fact that we've learned to check our desires doesn't mean a whole lot. Simply suppressing the desires is not fulfilling the requirements that God has for us. Because God isn't just satisfied with outward obedience, You can do and act all you will, but if your heart isn't in it, if your heart isn't behind it, it means nothing. Parents, think about your kids for a moment. You've probably learned to read them pretty well. Can you tell the difference between your kid obeying out of a joyful desire to be helpful for you or simply obeying because they fear the consequence? Can you tell when they are cleaning the bathroom, when they're sweeping the floors, when they're tidying up the dishes because they see that mom's tired and they love her and they want to make just this hour of the day easier for her? Can you tell the difference between that and see them cleaning because you told them to and they're scared of what will happen if you don't? Get back in your room right now and clean. How much more can your Heavenly Father tell if you only obey because you fear the consequences of your desire becoming public? How much more can He tell that you don't act because you hate all sin and delight in all righteousness? but simply because you don't want to get caught out in the rain. No, the Lord knows all. He knows when we're obeying simply out of rote, tradition, or custom. And He wants the heart. That is where our catechism highlights it. That's where the catechism comes to the fore. You may find it interesting that the catechism seems not to touch on the question of coveting at all. And yet the very fact that it speaks to the heart shows that it's grasped the basic thrust of all the commandments. The tenth commandment by its very nature, being a commandment that explicitly deals with the heart as opposed to outward actions, shows that God himself also wants the heart of his people. He demands that they yearn to follow him above all. That they abandon all thought of disobedience. That the slightest thought or desire that they should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. God wants the heart. And this is where we reach the third word that for coveting that we'll discuss today. One found in the New Testament. And this word is epithumia. Epithumia. It's Greek. Epithumia is unique among the words that we look at today. It's unique in that it's not something that's simply bad in and of itself. This word just refers to an intense desire. The intense desire itself is not wrong. The question is, which direction is this intense desire pointed at? And it is this word that shows up in our 1 Timothy 6 passage today. We read in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who crave riches... Who have an intense desire for them, plunge themselves into ruin. Paul continues, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. That's the wretchedness of those who that awaits those who store up for themselves treasures on earth without a thought to the future. They lose perspective. They make excuses. They make one concession after another until they slip off the narrow and winding road and onto the broad and straight that leads to destruction. And at the end of the day, they not only have their treasure in heaven, they not only do not have their treasure in heaven, but their treasure on earth that they so craved is lost as well. They pass away, leaving their wealth for the next person to enjoy. Their precious clothes, destroyed by moths. Their precious metals, destroyed, rusted, corroded. Their eternal soul, lost. So you can hear the pain in Paul's voice when he cries out, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Oh, foolish person, he seems to be saying. Why do you have such a short-sighted view Why do you settle for such paltry pleasures and such nagging discontent all your life long when true contentment in this life and indescribable eternal riches in the next can be yours? Perhaps now you may be thinking to yourself, how then can I find this contentment? This sounds wonderful and all, but look at the commandment. Look at the charge that you find there. And let's look at it once more, brothers and sisters. What do we see there? We read Not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Is that not terrible? How frightening this can be. Yes, you may say, I understand that God wants the heart, but isn't it not a little much to ask that not even the slightest thought contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise? Isn't it hopeless to suggest that this epithumia that we show, this intense desire, should be directed away from objects to be coveted and directed toward God How in this life can we manage that? Even the Catechism points out our shortcomings. We've seen that over the course of the rest of the Ten Commandments. Even the Catechism says here in the next question and answer that no one can keep these commandments perfectly, much less this last one. Even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Is not our situation hopeless then? But then, brothers and sisters, we lose sight of where we find this Lord's Day in the Catechism. We lose sight of where we find the Christian life in relation to God. We lose sight of the fact that God commands, but God also provides. And God has provided all that he required for us. 2,000 years ago, on the lonely cross on Golgotha. For Christ died there for us. And now he lives and reigns over us. This submission of the heart that is required of us, that we're unable to fulfill, has already been offered to God on our behalf. This epithumia, intense desire and yearning for God, has already been offered. We've seen how great our sins and misery are. Yes, we have. Over the course of the last weeks, each of the Ten Commandments, we most certainly have seen how great our sins and misery are. But we've also seen how we're delivered from our sins and misery. And so the terror that would otherwise stalk us when we see these great requirements of God no longer does. Certainly by this commandment and by all of them, we become more aware of our sinful nature. But this gives us all the more reason to turn to Christ. It gives us the incentive to seek Him, seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness that can be found in Him. And so we are free. We're free to live and find our contentment in our Lord Jesus Christ, free to serve Him out of thankfulness for what He has provided. In the past, our desires were bound up with sin. They were fixed on things that could never fulfill, and they were trapped there. But now we are freed to pursue the greatest satisfaction this world can offer. Now that intense desire can be freely and fully focused on the only one who will will fulfill it, Jesus Christ. But how far does this freedom extend? Can we pursue good things? Or must we live in poverty with only the poorest of things? Does pursuit of Christ mean that everything else that we own is bad? Do we need to live in guilt for wanting to upgrade our heaters so that we live in a warm house? Upgrade our vehicle because our old one is so close to the end of its life? Spend some time away on holidays in a cottage instead of a campground? are material things and financial success never okay. When we receive good things from God, we must remember to keep it in perspective. The perspective of the freedom that's granted to us by Christ. The teacher from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5:18 to 19, he says there, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Do you see? It's good and it's fitting to enjoy God's good gifts. When we are given opportunities in this life, we are free to take them, recognizing who they've come from, that they've come from God's hands. But we must never make a goal of them in and of themselves. God wants us to enjoy the fruit of our labor in as far as our blessings have been managed in a way that brings glory to him in our management of our money, in our purchases and pursuits. Christ must always be at the forefront. It is then that we'll be able to find contentment in this world and in Him. So let us not return to bondage, setting our desires most intensely on things that will never fulfill our deepest needs and wants. Let us set our desires on Christ, Let's live in the awareness of our sin and our temptation to set our desires elsewhere, yes, but instead of submitting to them, turn to seek forgiveness of sins and righteousness that can be only found in Christ. And for those who find it difficult to believe that this could be possible, the Catechism gives one final word of encouragement. We can pray to God. We can pray to God to find that strength by the grace of the Holy Spirit. More and more, we can pray to be renewed, to be people after God's own heart, people in His image, until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. This is not some mere upgrade, this is not some mere better gadget or toy. This is not simply taking growth in a new direction. This is not settling. This is new life. Never again do we need to say more, more, more because our cup runs over. We're filled to overflowing. And so through Christ, let's joyfully embrace the fulfillment of our deepest need and the riches of contentment beyond anything that this world can offer. Amen.